Uh, our next uh, speaker uh, just spoke uh, an hour ago, so we welcome back Dr. Erickson. You probably do, but I think it's nice to have some idea of what we do in looking at the slides and the pathology standpoint so that when you do get reports back, you have a good idea of what to tell the patient if they ask you things. But what I want to talk about now is kind of the wild world of melanocytic lesions. This, I think, is the most fun part and the most unusual part in what we do. I'll start with some that are a bit more common that we all see and then go on to show you just how bizarre melanocytic proliferations can be and things you would never think are melanocytic end up being melanocytic. It's nice to know just to have seen these entities because they're amazing entities. And there's actually... A, a bit of a point to it as well, because some of these very bizarre characteristics that we'll come up with in some of the tumors I'll discuss at the end, it's nice for you to know. So that if you end up following a patient with a melanoma, they end up with a tumor at another site, which just makes no sense at all, and they want to call it a signet ring cell carcinoma or something like that, you'd say, you know, I heard this talk about these bizarro melanomas. Is there any chance it could be that? And call back and ask him to actually do markers to look for it, because some of these are very bizarre. We'll start with something that we all see. Well, this is actually the bad end of what we all see. This is a 69-year-old male with a recurrent scalp lesion in the right infratemporal fossa. Six years before, he had a cellular blue nevus with atypical features in the same site. Oops. This is his original biopsy, an atypical cellular blue nevus. Uh, and it's very cellular. And for uh, blue nevus, this is more than what one would generally see. You look at the cytology, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit hyperchromatic. The cells are a little bit dark, but they're not terribly pleomorphic, and I don't see a lot of mitotic activity. So I think that diagnosis was very reasonable. It was recommended that the lesion be completely excised. That didn't happen. It came back a time again and a time again. Still, it wasn't completely excised. And then finally, six years later, when it recurred, it looked horrible. So from low power, this is, this is necrosis, and this is a high-grade malignancy. This ends up being melanoma. And for cellular blue nevi, there is some tendency, Jeff Harville at Stanford has shown for them to get more cellular and more atypical over time that can happen. And this is an example, I think, of that phenomenon. So the diagnosis is malignant blue nevus or melanoma arising in blue nevus. Blue nevi we all see. They're common entities. You can recognize them uh, clinically. I can recognize them in pathology. They're positive for the general melanocytic markers, usually dorsal of the hands and feet, buttock, more common and more darkly skinned people, usually small lesions, single. There are some rare familial multiple cases. This, from a pathology standpoint, is very classic. No problem at all. We have the delicate bipolar spindle cells, and then the cells with all this pigment, those are actually melanophages. They're not the lesional cells. But we can recognize this, no problem. Cellular blue nevi, a bit more problematic. Usually we see them in children, young adults, more common in females, dorsal feet and buttocks. They can show progressive slow enlargement, often decent in size when they're uh, finally removed. Grossly, they're circumscribed. They have a dark cut surface. And classically, the books will all say they have this some dumbbell-shaped pattern. I actually went through 50 cases to get this one dumbbell-shaped pattern to show you. There's alternate, alternating hypo and hypercellular areas in them. This is another characteristic feature, the cystification. You see these balls of cells floating in the background of the cystic change. This is often mistaken for necrosis, and it's a terrible problem because they be, get called malignant. 
cells of the lesion and with the melanophages surrounding these nests, very uh, characteristic. And when you look at the cells, it doesn't take a pathologist to know that the cells, they all look monotonous. You could take one cell, switch it with another cell in there. It's not going to make any difference. It's going to look the same. You wouldn't be able to tell. It's very monotonous, very bland. But when we get into atypical cellular blue nevi, this is more problematic. Well, what makes it atypical? Well, a variety of things do, but it's very tough to get exact agreement in the literature regarding it for atypical cellular blue nevi. And as part of the North American Melanoma Pathology Study Group, a bunch of us got together to look at a batch of these cellular blue and atypical cellular blue melanocytic neoplasms. And the point to this is, look at how poor our majority agreement is. And this is with a batch of folks that have particular interest in melanocytic lesions and look at them day in and day out. So we concluded that there is substantial confusion and disagreement among pathologists about the definitions and biologic nature of the cellular blue melanocytic neoplasms, especially those that are atypical. And the take-home message from all is that we suggest that cellular blue nevi, particularly atypical cellular blue nevi, be completely excised in patients, and patients have long-term follow-up. You know, there are cases in the, in the literature, even with cellular blue nevi, that apparently showed no atypia at all. And then years later, the patients end up with metastases. We're used to thinking of spits as kind of that lesion that we all cringe about. We just don't even want the conversation about because it's such a problem. Cellular blue nevi, particularly those with atypical features, are just as problematic. They're just very rare. We'll look at an example, and this has to do with sampling. This is a, another take-home thing to think about when you have a lesion, a cellular blue lesion, or a lesion that you think is a blue nevus but is bigger, something about it. Sampling is a substantial issue in these lesions. So here's a lesion from low power. Here's that cystification. This one's got it too, that where it kind of falls apart a bit. It's not necrotic. On higher power of the cells, again, you could take one cell, switch it with another cell around in here. Couldn't tell any difference. They're all about the same very monotonous cellular pattern. Here's that floaty cells, those floaty cells in the background, that cystification, we know that's benign, but we gotta keep looking because sampling's a huge issue in these. And we come across this expansile area like this, sheet-like growth, mitotic activity, nuclear atypia, that's melanoma. So that lesion now has changed to melanoma uh, arising in a blue nevus or malignant cellular blue nevus. This is another thing to show you about what, what we end up with is problems. This is a real-life consultation case. Came in, 44-year-old male, shave biopsy from the forearm. This is what I diagnosed, cellular blue nevus, parentheses, C letter. Went on to say this lesion's unusual, that the increased cellularity is deep, and the lesion extends to involve the deep biopsy margin. I'm concerned as to whether or not what we have in the biopsy is truly representative of the lesion, and I did suggest that the lesion be removed. They weren't happy about it. It's like it's a blue nevus, come on. Received the re-excision specimen. This is where it was shaved, up here with this blue nevus part. And the re-excision, a lump of melanoma. We think about this happening in spits and other lesions, but it happens in the blue nevi, and it's very problematic. You think, oh, that was just one bizarre case she's got. Here's another one. I've got a lot of them. Shave off the top, you get the same diagnosis back from me on. Doesn't mean it happens every time I give that diagnosis. But when if you shave off and if I see deep cellularity, still not enough to call melanoma, I often suggest that they do excise the whole thing and, and have found these lumps of melanoma underneath, not sampled. Now, talking about some other variants of blue nevi, it's interesting, there's all kinds of variants 
uh, to look at. We're going to talk about just a couple, though. The sclerosing or desmoplastic variant of blue nevi, because that's very problematic in separating from desmoplastic melanoma. And the other is the epithelioid blue nevus, because it's associated with Carney's complex in a number of cases. This is Aidan Carney. Uh, he still comes into work at Mayo every day, leaves at noon, though, kind of a slacker, I think, but I guess if you're emeritus, you can. Um, he's a very good guy. I'm just, I just give him grief. Uh, Carney complex is an autosomal dominant condition. They're two loci. He's the only uh, living person that, when the genes were identified, uh, that a gene was actually named after a living person. The uh, Carney's complex is important. If you get a diagnosis of blue nevus with epithelioid features or epithelioid blue nevus, you really need to think about this entity. Usually I put in the letter for the consultation cases. Um, In-house, I, I think I would tell them to call because they're associated with a variety of changes. It's not pathognomonic, but it's a very high association. Um, uh, Lentigenes, other blue nevi, cutaneous myxomas. If you get a cutaneous myxoma on the ear or on the areola of the breast, you think carnies. And they probably have carnies until you rule out that they don't. And there's genetic testing for it. But a myxoma on the ears or on the areola of the breast. Uh, uh, primary pigmented nodular adrenal cortical disease, pituitary tumors. They have a variety of tumors. I'll show you some of them. Here's the epithelioid blue nevus. This is a pigmented somomatous schwannoma. These are mistaken for melanomas. Here are the mucosal antigenes, helpful to recognize in this setting. Uh, Sertoli cell tumors, Leydig cell tumors, a variety of others. This is something to it's interesting to know about primary pigmented nodular adrenal cortical disease in Carney's complex. The reason it's particularly interesting is that you get these, they're pigmented nodules in the cortex of the adrenal gland. So you have pigmentation in nodules in the adrenal. So what do people generally first think of? Metastatic melanoma. Do you know what the best, histo the best immunomarker is for adrenal cortex? Any just wild guess? Melanin. So they're positive for melanase, so that can be a pitfall, and these can be mistaken for melanoma. Again, the cutaneous myxoma on the ear or on the nipple or on the areola of the breast, think carnies if you get that. And the reason it's important to think about is this, the cardiac myxomas. As soon as a patient is found or worried to have carnies, they're going to start uh, evaluating for the possibility of cardiac myxomas. That's what they die from. Now, blue nevi can occur in a variety of oddball sites, subungal, um, mucosal prostate. This is one um, I had a few months back of the endocervix, and a blue nevus in the endocervix. So when we think about it, we don't just think of melanostatic lesions on the skin. As you know, they happen, obviously, everywhere. This is the sclerotic amelanotic blue nevus. In a biopsy like this, the diagnosis is very easy. It's a very symmetrical lesion. But if this is shaved along the top, it can be problematic in separating from a desmoplastic melanoma. This is a blue nevus cell. It's a very delicate cell. You know those cells we saw earlier, the dark pigmented ones? Those are melanophages. These are the actual lesional cells very delicate uh, spindle-shaped cell, spindle cell with bipolar cytoplasmic processes with very fine melanin pigment. And that's what you need to recognize uh, to be definitive in making a diagnosis of a sclerotic blue nevus. The problem, of course, is with desmoplastic melanoma in the differential. Here's a 65-year-old female. She had a pigmented lesion on the left cheek. 
So from low power, what do you think that is? 65 pigmented lesion on the cheek. Melanoma. That skin is too thick to be on the face. It's about too thick to be anywhere. It's a pink biopsy. If it, the biopsy is blue with epithelioid cells, it could be melanoma, but it sure isn't desmoplastic melanoma. We have these lymphoid aggregates here. The problem we have is if you get a, if you get a shaved biopsy over the top, it's difficult to make the diagnosis of desmoplastic melanoma. It's real tough because that you're just not seeing a lot of the dermal bit. And when you look at those cells, the cells in the dermis are so wimpy looking. They have so little atypia. I, it's hard to even see anything for atypia in them. Also, desmoplastic melanomas have the lowest mitotic rate of any melanoma, so that's not going to help you either. When I tell the residents, they're so proud. Oh, I got a lenigo malignant, thank goodness, and they're all proud. I'm like, good job, way to go. But the most important thing in that biopsy is not that lenigo malignant. Look down below to be sure you're not missing a desmoplastic. And that's the reason that they think desmoplastics are often so deep in the, in the bi, in, when the, they're diagnosed, is because sometimes they are missed superficially. So here, do you see the desmoplastic melanoma? Pretty subtle. It's these little teeny cells here. Those aren't atypical. Those are little specks of cells. That's desmoplastic melanoma. You see how they kind of crushed the follicles? Lymphoid aggregates, and then also we have nerves that are enlarged. It's a rare variant of melanoma, 1 to 5%. Usually sun-damaged skin of the head and neck, but it can occur anywhere. Usually 6th to 7th decade of life. The youngest I've seen is a 13-year-old uh, girl in the breast. So they can occur anywhere. Um, erythematous pale fleshy nodules or plaques or pigmentation over a dermal nodule. If you're going to do a biopsy and you feel some nodularity, please let the pathologist know because we all want to do the best for the patient. So a heads up to that to be sure people really are looking hard down below would be very helpful. And yeah, punch or incisional biopsy or whatever you can do to get enough deep. And oftentimes, like if it's on the face, I know one doesn't want to do anything destructive, but at least a decent punch to look down. Because the shave, you're never going to see it. You're going to be so proud, like our residents are, that they got a lenigo maligna. And then they'll be done there. And the lenigo maligna is not what's going to kill that patient. Here's a desmoplastic melanoma in cut section. You can tell it's not pigmented. Uh, over the top, we don't see pigmentation, but we see scar. Because that was biopsied right in this area. And a little bit of the desmoplastic was biopsied with it. Uh, as compared to a blue nevus, how pigmented that is. But again, there are amelanotic blue nevi. Low power, what's the diagnosis? This is the face. It's too thick. We know it's too thick, and low power, you get some idea. I think that might be melanocytic. And look at those squished adnexal structures. So the dermis, too thick for face skin. The adnexal structures are squished and compressed, deeply invasive, and then you have these lumps down on the bottom. They literally look like lumps. And if you have deep lumps, I always tell the residents, those are probably involved nerves, so be very careful. And then, of course, we have our lymphoid aggregates. And this is what I mean by when they go in to the adnexa. This is a desmoplastic melanoma. It goes in, invades the adnexa, and it just squishes the follicles. It squishes the adnexal structures. Whereas a blue nevus, do you see this clearing around? the follicle here, this clearing, that's the adventitia going around it. And you see the blue nevus cells? They go around the adventitia. They respect the adventitia. And they don't squish those follicles in. So that's actually quite a helpful feature. Because these cells, you look at them, there's no way you could find much atypia in that. You're not going to find mitotic activity. Well, how about immunostains? How helpful are they? 
Desmoplastic melanomas are unique. They're generally positive of the melanocytic markers only for S100. They're not positive for other melanocytic markers. About half the time, they stain for smooth muscle actin. There are a few more markers that we use nowadays. They're not, none of them are particularly grand. So you figure, well, S100, then they're positive for that. So, uh, well, the pathologist, you know, in a re-excision specimen of a desmoplastic, they could do an S100 if there's a problem. You know, what's the holdup? This is the holdup. S100 is also positive in scars. This is a nice, uh, simple study that was done. They looked at uh, 22 scars from re-excision specimens of previously biopsied non-melanocytic skin lesions. And in 21 of the 22 cases, there's S100 positivity. And in about a fourth of them, it was substantial staining of the, S1, of, uh, the scars. So that's why scars do have very particular features, but if they're not perfect, it's difficult. This I know, this is a scar. The adnexal structures are gone, but what we also have is the vessels are oriented vertical to the, to the epidermis, vertical vessels, and the collagen runs parallel. And if you're ever looking and you think, well, it's hard to see that, you can polarize it and it'll show up. So we really don't use immunohistochemical markers that terribly much with desmoplastic. People put desmoplastic dermal spits nevus. Well, it's desmoplastic dermal spits. Couldn't it have been a desmoplastic melanoma? No. These are epithelioid cells, big epithelioid cells. Those aren't spit cells. So even though it's in all the books as that, in reality, no. Neurofibroma. This can be a problem in a very superficial biopsy. Say you get a shave like this. And well, you can stain it for S100, and neurofibroma will be positive for S100. Any neural tumor will. The cells are, are helpful uh, if you only have a small biopsy. The cells are very haphazard. They don't have the fascicular growth pattern that we often do see in desmoplastic melanomas. And then again, the circumscribed base, also quite helpful. Fibromatosis, uh, this is a devastating, terrible, sad case. It's a 13-year-old kid, um, and he pleaded with his parents to let him have the amputation done, and they were like, no way, no way. And finally, they gave in, and it was done for, this is fibromatosis, 13-year-old kid's foot. This is done at St. Mary's. Um, and it has, it has fairly delicate cells. They're, they are spindle-shaped cells. This is, on a, this is on a kid, but obviously fibromatosis affects adults as well, and it can be confused. Sarcomatoid squam. Well, how can a squam be confused with that desmoplastic melanoma? You see how spindly these are and growing in a fascicular pattern and you have the lymphoid aggregates? That's how. But we have markers that are helpful. We're, there are some specific keratins that will stain a sarcomatoid squamous cell carcinoma, so that's helpful. Smooth muscle tumors. Remember, if you only take like one marker, say the pathologist thinks, okay, I gotta save some money here. I'm getting too many complaints. I'm gonna just do, I, you know, it's spindly, um, smooth muscle. Okay, I'll try that. Smooth muscle actin positive, sign it as that, and, and that's um, uh, a problem because smooth muscle tumors obviously are positive, but so are half of desmoplastic melanomas. So just so you kind of have an idea of what we actually go through in looking at the cases. These have high recurrence rates, are deeply invasive, and frequent perineural invasion. Um, the desmoplastic melanomas match depth for depth of invasion, though, do have about the same risk uh, and possibly less of metastasis and death than conventional melanomas. They kill the patients equally depth per depth as conventional melanomas, but they go to the viscera first rather than going to the lymph nodes. They act more like sarcomas. 
Now I'll switch to a bit different topic. This is a 16-month-old male child with a thickened area in a congenital melanocytic nevus, another kind of unusual deal. Here's most of the lesion, looks like this. You have these uh, bland cells, and again, you could switch one with another around, wouldn't make any difference. We don't see much for nucleoli, we don't see mitotic activity, so it looks fine. But then you have this. You palpate a lesion like this, take this out. This is a problem, the tumefactive nodules. And you see how sharply demarcated that is? I mean, there's a big lump of nodule. It's like you dropped a marble right in. You just drop marbles in, something like that, it looks like. Very sharply demarcated from the associated uh, congenital nevus. And this is melanoma arising in a congenital nevus. This is a proliferation nodule. This is where we really struggle on when you feel a lump in a, in a, a congenital nevus if it's a proliferation nodule or if it's melanoma. This is mainly what we're looking at. And here you see that the cells, we, well, it's, I guess it's sort of demar sort of like there and maybe there. Well, you know, the demarcation is kind of hard to draw around there as opposed to uh, this. Well, I mean, that's easy. That's very demarcated. This isn't. This is proliferation nodule, not melanoma. The cells aren't as atypical, uh, and, the, and they merge with the associated nevus cells, and they don't have all this terrible mitotic activity, multiple nucleoli. This is frankly malignant. Does it mean this frankly malignant lesion then is melanoma? It doesn't. We generally do stain to confirm that. It can be rhabdomyosarcoma. It can be anything. In these uh, congenital nevi, if they get a malignancy, it can literally be anything that to develop in them. Um, in looking at, at congenital melanocytic nevi, um, this is an older study. There's not much that's changed too much in the literature about them. About 1 in 20,000 newborns. Uh, risk for melanoma increases with nevus size, giant. Some have referred to as 20 centimeters in size. Others say, well, if it requires a graft for closure. Um, it's been thought that 30% of pediatric melanomas arise in these lesions, and about half of the melanomas arising in congenital lesion and congenital nevi do so in the first decade of life. Lifetime risk of melanoma degeneration in a congenital nevus is about 2 to 10%, and the risk depends on the size of the lesion. Um, small and medium-sized ones, 2 to 5% about. These aren't perfect, and you can find a lot of uh, numbers in literature. It's a little baby with a, a giant nevus, and lifetime risk for the giant uh, nevi, 45 to 10%. This is a very interesting problem. Congenital nevi in the head and neck area uh, or the skin over the spine can involve uh, proliferation of melanocytic cells of the meninges of the brain and spinal cord and can rarely extend into the brain. This is one that Bernd Scheitauer, one of our, one of our neuropathologists, and I worked on um, some months ago on a baby. You have all, this is brain. This is brain parenchyma. This isn't meninges or anything. This is brain. So this is a huge deal. Anyway, so the cells go in and they go in around the vessels. Oftentimes, uh, a variety of other tumors will do that as well. But this is melanin positive. We struggled a great deal with this case, as you could imagine. And in the end, we think this is extension of leptomeningeal melanosis into the brain parenchyma of this child. All right, now on to another odd type of lesion. This you'll probably see. It's good to be aware of. This is a 22-year-old female, a mole on the pubis. This is an atypical compound nevus of genital type. That's the official name. What we end up with when we get these, um, you have to know about the entity. And if you get a diagnosis of vulvar melanoma in a 20-year-old woman, Call the pathologist, ask them to look at it again, ask them to have somebody else look. It's extremely rare, and this can be a problem. 
Um, here, this is a symmetrical lesion. It's very papillomatous. And you see kind of irregularity, a fair bit of regularity of the nest along the junction and in the superficial papillary dermis. But you notice it looks like kind of two components. You have this very atypical bit, and then you have this sudden maturation into this diffuse melanocytic proliferation there. And that sudden maturation is very characteristic of this entity, the atypical compound nevus of genital type. Is it truly atypical? Well, this is atypical looking. You couldn't see this at any other site and not be terribly worried about it. Very irregular nests. They're aberrantly located up along the uh, suprapapillary plates. You can have some along the sides of the reet. Very abnormal. Here, discohesion cells, one cell to another and from the epidermis. So there are atypical features, but it's not likely inherent to the lesion, to the site, because the genital skin is more responsive to hormones uh, than skin in other sites. So the atypia is thought likely to be just inherent to the lesion because of it being a special site. The diagnosis is made in young women, usually around 25 years old, uh, second to third decade. Again, vulvar melanoma, extremely rare at this age. You get a diagnosis of that. I have diagnosed it in young women, but you get a diagnosis, you generally ask for another opinion because it's so terribly rare. And now in other sites, say on the arm, fine, you have a melanoma and you get a big re-excision specimen, maybe you get a flap, whatever. On the vulva, they often do vulvectomy. And I don't know if you've been in the OR when you, you've seen that done. I would rather die. It is a horrific procedure to have done. So that's why in this site in particular, you'd be just very careful and look out for the interest of the patient in these sorts of, uh, of problems. Now, on the other side of the problem is that if you get a, have an 80-year-old female with a biopsy and you get back a diagnosis, atypical compound nevus of genital type, yeah, call the pathologist again then too because that would be pretty rare would be much more worried that that is melanoma. So this is an area I think it's good for everybody to be highly aware of and really look out for the patients in this. It's a foot lesion. Feet are problematic uh, for melanocytic lesions. From this, we can tell it's symmetrical. That's nice, and it's not inflamed. Big deal, though. We see inflammation in melanocytic lesions from anywhere. Well, except from the acral sites. On the acral sites, if you see inflammation, you're terribly worried. This has some ab aberrant growth. You see how these nests are up there? the suprapapillary plates. We saw that in the vulvar ones as well. Any other site, that would be atypical, but on the acral sites, uh, one can see it. You can also see pagetoid spread. Generally, the cells extend up from overlying junctional nests, but they can be problematic. Now this, you can all tell, looks different. See, it's so inflamed. Just that alone, terrible worry, that's melanoma. And on higher power, this is melanoma. Very regular growth, mostly single cells, pagetoid, and significantly atypical. There are problems with acral melanomas, that, and there are mistakes that we make. This is one. This was diagnosed as an in situ melanoma, um, and they went back, did more biopsies and more biopsies. It's actually, I think, invasive from the beginning. The problem with melanomas in the acral sites in particular is that they extend down the eccrine units. And there's a lot of eccrine units on your feet because most people have kind of sweaty feet. Um, so it extends down those, and then you don't see them. Usually on melanomas on acral sites, I'll do a melanade just to see how far that thing is going. This back and back and forth and back and forth with biopsies and such, this is actually nerve extending up. This is a high power of the foot, but actually this was a blown knee amputation, and the nerve was still positive at the margin. So these are very problematic cases. 
All right, this is another entity. This is one where in working together with the pathologist, you really can save the patient and yourselves and everyone grief. Um, we see this high-density junctional melanocytic proliferation. So just that alone, we're pretty worried, Say in, particularly in an adult, high-density junctional melanocytic proliferation. But what's below it are these vessels. They're kind of vertically oriented. And if you look at the collagen, it's parallel. So in this, this is atypical, uh, or this is a recurrent nevus phenomenon. Look at this. This looks pretty bad. I mean, it's hard to even know where the nest is. It all runs together. It's very irregular, significantly atypical. Um, you can even have some cells in the papillary dermis of this. But you, you back up and look at the lesion. This looks terrible up on top. So if you skim off the top of this thing, you get, you'd get that called melanoma. But from low power, you can tell that although it looks terrible on the top, and even in the papillary dermis, we have these vertical vessels. And we have that collagen. You see it running parallel. So that terrible proliferation is overlying a scar. What's underneath it is this, this benign nevic component here. So is that melanoma rising in, a in association with a nevus? That's possible. But likely what this is is the trizonal pattern, high-density junctional melanocytic proliferation, overlying a scar with a residual nevus. This is residual and recurrent compound nevus with atypia, as seen in the spectrum of recurrent nevus phenomenon. If, you, if we don't know, however, that there was a previous biopsy there, that could be very easily called a melanoma in association with the scar. I showed you that case because it had a beautiful scar with it. They're not all so beautiful. Melanocytic nevi can recur if they're incompletely excised, uh, they're traumatized from other, uh, from other causes, scarring, even immunobolus disorders associated with scarring can give changes similar to recurrent nevus phenomenon. They could have got scraped with a stick you know, for whatever reason that they did. Um, so trauma can be associated with them. Usually it's irregular pigmentation of scar, and more commonly these occur in females, in the trunk, face, and then extremities. They recur very quickly, less than six months usually. Melanomas take a while to recur. Usually it's a year or more. So the very fast recurrence goes along with recurrent nevus phenomenon. But the history is really critical. And reviewing the prior biopsy, if they've had a previous biopsy in that area, it's so helpful if you'd write that onto the report. Just incredibly helpful. And in cases where I don't have history and I suspect it, I generally will call and ask and request the previous biopsy. So for this, what do you think this looks like? That looks bad, right? That's all the facing along there. That's just terrible looking. But in this, I thought, well, again, I got those vertical vessels and, he may, and some collagen running parallel, but geez, this looks bad. I'll call the outside and see if there was anything, if they've had anything. Turns out they had a previous biopsy here. This is what it showed, a nothing compound nevus. You can't get more benign than this. So instead of calling this a melanoma, this is now atypical compound nevus, uh, or compound nevus with a, or junctional nevus with atypia as seen in the spectrum of recurrent nevus phenomenon after seeing that. So you see how it makes a tremendous difference. And I show you those cases with the beautiful scars just to show you how the vessels go. Most cases are not quite that beautiful. And if the pathologists aren't used to the entity or working with that entity all the time, you just writing it on the report will make them think, oh, there is that entity. And that'll help the patients. And that's what we're all trying to do. Here's a a uh, very odd case, 56-year-old male with sarcoid. He had a scalp lesion, clinical differential, cutaneous sarcoid, a scar, or a skin cancer, and it was biopsied. This is uh, what was taken. Any idea? 
Basal cell, very good thought. I mean, I think that'd be at the top of anybody's list. And apparently that's what it was called. You have peripheral palisading of the cells. You have separation artifact. The cells all look a bit atypical, but similarly atypical. So it was diagnosed as basal cell, makes sense. A year later, he uh, showed up at Mayo Clinic for evaluation for his sarcoidosis. He underwent a CT scan, and they found liver nodules. And they also palpated uh, nodes in the neck and cervical region. FNA, this is his FNA of the liver. That showed metastatic melanoma. They hunted uh, and hunted for a primary, and there wasn't anything. And the oncologist requested that the previous, that he had had some biopsy historically, requested that that be sent to Mayo and have it to be looked at. So that's when I got this. And it's not because I'm any genius, although I'd like it if you thought so, okay? But I thought, you know, well, it is, there's something a little bit odd about it. Since he has a melanoma, and this is a little bit odd, I, I think I'm going to stain it. It does have that peripheral palisading. I'm sure not going to burn the outside focus on this because, you know, it's, it's an, you know, it looks like a basal cell. I had one, but it's the best fit. Here's the keratin. It's positive. But look at how it's positive in such a mixed pattern. You have all those other cells that aren't positive. This is the melanin A. HMB45 and tyrosine showed the same thing. So I described this as an entity, as a malignant basal melanocytic tumor. After I've described this, now these have suddenly become common. Well, um, not common, but they sure have shown up. Um, so you may be hearing more about these, these entities. And with the numbers that I've been receiving is, as consults now that people are aware of them, it's good to just be aware that there is such an entity as these biphasic tumors. Uh, this is the first of the basal melanocytic tumors, but squamal melanocytic tumors have been described. This is done by Steve Poole. And so you have squamoid areas. See that pink keratin-y stuff there? Squamoid areas in the tumor, and the epithelioid. The keratin highlights the epithelioid, but the other stuff in there is melanocytic. And it's the intimated mixture. Well, why isn't it just a pigmented squame? We see those every day. Or a pigmented basal cell. I mean, seriously, we do. We see those every single day, at least if you're reading out like in a common practice, they do. Um, and it's because these are big and atypical epithelioid cells. They're not the little dendritic -y cells that we see every day in basal cells and squames. But these can be terrible problems. Uh, no squamal melanocytic tumors have been reported in association with metastases, either squamoid or melanocytic. This is another problem that we get uh, on occasion. This is a, a basal cell carcinoma, and it's colonized by a melanoma. Now, the re why isn't a basal melanocytic tumor? Well, it's because of that you have basal cell, clearly basal cell, but then you look along the junction here, you have melanoma. You have melanoma in its own right, growing along the junction. In the basal melanocytic tumors, or those biphasic tumors, you don't. It's a bidirectional differentiation of the cells. So in this, I read this as basal cell carcinoma uh, parasitized slash colonized by melanoma. There's about 10 reports in the literature. I don't believe in case reports. I, I think they're kind of dumpy, um, but I did report that one, so I'm as guilty as anybody. But I thought it would be helpful in people to understand about a bidirectional tumor like this, and we do see them now. This is different. This we see, con uh, we see not commonly, but it's not that terribly uncommon. Um, and so what do you do with this patient? We don't really know. We haven't had positive nodes in our patients. We haven't reported them, though. Um, there's about 10 case reports in the literature. None have been known to be associated with metastases. But it's really not known what to do with them. 
but it's something that we do see. Now we'll end on a variety of just oddball types of, of uh, melanomas and hopefully get you guys out a little bit uh, on the early order. So since we're on the topic of melanoma, you figure the diagnosis for this must be melanoma. Um, but looking at this, it'd be real hard to make that as a diagnosis of melanoma. It's a, it's a clear balloon cell type tumor. It could be a clear cell squame. It could be a clear cell fibrous histiocytoma. It could be a variety of different things. But this is a clear cell or balloon cell variant of melanoma. You see some mitotic activity. And the nuclear atypia, I think, is, is what really uh, helps to tip one off. These are problematic. You can also have balloon cell nevi. Uh, as well, and it's difficult to differentiate between them. They're a very rare variant of melanoma, only about a 1% occur on the extremities. On the choroid, they're a lot more common, about 14%. Nodular polypoid or papillomatous lesions can be quite invasive at diagnosis. And again, the same age, immunophenotype, and clinical prognosis as conventional melanomas. So all these bizarro little deals I'm going to tell you about here in the end. Um, they're all pretty rare, but they're really quite characteristic in appearance, kind of shockingly different than what you'd expect. And as much as we know at this point, the behavior uh, is probably going to be the same as any other conventional melanoma based on what we know. The problem is, is that in a lot of these oddball variants, is that they may not show the odd features in the primary. They may, but they may not. They may show these odd features in the metastasis. So if you're following a patient who has melanoma and then they're seen by somebody else or have some lymph node biopsied you know, or something else and, and you're seeing them and it's like, oh, you're diagnosed with a, with a clear cell sarcoma of the, of the or a clear cell um, a hepatocellular or a hydradenoma or hydradenocarcinoma or something odd like that that shows clear cell change, clear cell renal cell, anything else. Ask about it. Is there any way this could be melanoma? Because obviously that would change prognosis uh, dramatically. So here's an example. Fine needle aspiration was done here. Uh, got the tumor out, looked like that. Your first thought is not melanoma, but that's what this is. The primary melanoma was conventional. Here's another one. You see some mucinous tumor like this. In a first thought is a myxoid sarcoma or a myxoid carcinoma. Your first thought, no way is that melanoma. Uh, frankly, malignant, no doubt about it, but this is melanoma. This is a myxoid melanoma. We see it in the skin, cyanonasal tract, sometimes the GI. Uh, this is most common as a pattern in metastases. That's why it's helpful. So you're just following the patient for melanoma, but you find out they have something else. It never hurts to call the pathologist. You're helping us if you do that to say, say, I heard about these oddball things. Any chance it could be that? Any chance? Because the treatment would be very different. The background has the mucin that's positive for uh, LC and blue and colloidal iron. The mucin is thought to be produced by the stromal cells, not the tumor cells. Okay, this is from, uh, this is from a finger. You see these on the fingers and on the toes and in the sinonasal areas. They're often ulcerated. If I see that, this is bone. This pink stuff is bone. So a bone-forming tumor on the fingers or toes or sinonasal area, what's my first thought? And this is true. Melanoma, not just because I look at melanoma day in and day out forever, but because on the fingers and on the toes and in the sinonasal area, this is a very classic uh, histologic presentation. It's not common, but it's very characteristic. What else could this be? What, what are every single one of these cases sent in as consultation as? What do you think? Osteosarcoma, exactly. Every single one comes as that. Do you know how many osteosarcomas happen in the fingers and toes? Any idea? 
Well, at Mayo, they've kept all the pathology for the last 100 years. And there, we've had a couple famous bone pathologists. So they've seen half of all bone tumors in this country, basically, for the past 100 years. And I'll show you on two hands how many times there's been an osteosarcoma on the fingers and toes. 10. That's it extraordinarily rare. They're sent in to confirm that it's osteosarcoma and to help grade it because it's unusual, and they're not. These are melanomas, so, you, so if you have a patient, uh, finger or toe biopsy or sinonasal, anything like that, for you folks, probably be more fingers and toes. You get back osteosarcoma, call them back because chances are it isn't. Here, higher power of the bone is, this isn't just stuff. This isn't just a metaplastic bone, it's malignant bone. Yeah? What's that variation called? The osteogenic melanoma. No, that's good. Osteogenic melanoma. Now, these features are going to be similar to the next variant that we look at. The acral, uh, they're usually acral, it can be subungal and sinus, so often fingers and toes and the nose. Destructive, often ulcerated, may arise from acral antigenous melanoma if you have a radial growth phase present. They can also show chondroblastic differentiation, and the metastases may or may not show. Uh, osteocartilaginous differentiation. So again, you have a patient following for a melanoma. They suddenly have an osteosarcoma out of the blue. Is it melanoma? And you're helping the pathologist if you call and ask them. Here again, look, we know this is acral skin, the thick stratum corneum, the laminal lucidum, and then with this epithelium. We know this is acral, and we have this. What's this stuff? This bluish stuff. In the normal world, what would it be? Cartilage, right? But we're looking at oddball melanocytic tumors. This is malignant. That's chondroid melanoma. Chondroid and osteogenic melanoma run together. Again, you get a diagnosis of chondrosarcoma on the hands or the feet. You call the pathologist. Are you sure? Because that every case I've seen diagnosed, at least sent in from the outside, they all come into something else. So it's important, I know these are odd, but in the off chance that one of you gets it, you're really going to help the patient a lot by calling the pathologist and asking them, because they're odd for, for everyone. Staining, well, you think, well, S100, how about that? S100 stains cartilage, but melanin A and HMB45 are helpful. So this is cartilage staining for melanin A. Well, that's because it's melanoma. It's not con a chondrosarcoma. And here's the tumor, another type of odd melanoma. You see how the nuclei, the blue, is pushed aside and you have these kind of pink cytoplasmic deals pushing them aside like this, that cell there? That's a rhabdoid appearance. And um, people think, well, so that, that can't be any problem. Rhabdo, rhabdomyosarcomas, they all occur in kids, right? And I get these, these articles to review from, from Durham journals about a very unusual case of rhabdomyosarcoma, how unheard of in an adult. Of course they occur in adults. The pleomorphic variant of rhabdo, where do you think it does occur? Older adults. So this is a real differential diagnosis. And if people aren't aware of either problem, they could, they could uh, miss it. And the treatment's extremely different. So this is the rhabdoid variant of melanoma. The morphology can be in the primary and the, and the metastases or just one or the other. Oftentimes you'll have a background in a primary lesion of a more conventional melanoma or at least a junctional component. These are positive for S100, so if somebody says, well, to differentiate if it's a rhabdomyosarcoma or a melanoma, I'll just do HMB45. You see that the whole one's going to dig themselves into with that. Another problem, they may also show staining for keratin and smooth muscle actin. 
And of course, rhabdoid is muscle tumor. So you can see where this can be a real problem. So I think it's good that everybody knows of the bizarre things that melanomas can do, just so we all have a high index of suspicion and aren't afraid to talk to each other and call and say, could this be one of those rare things? No, no, they're not truly rhabdoid. They're generally uh, negative for uh, myogenin and for desmond, but they're not very common, but they don't have that, no. But either would rhabdomyosarcomas aren't going to necessarily have that. That's more if you have muscle necrosis. But um, it's an interesting thought. And, uh, and honestly, I mean, I say no, but has that been looked at? No, it hasn't been looked at. So, um, but I would think not, but it has not been looked at. Okay, so if one of our residents gets a case like this, the answer I want out of them for this signet ring cell tumor statistically is what? Signet ring cell carcinoma. Tell them to look in the stomach, right? That's what it's going to be. Statistic, esophagus as well, exactly. Those are very good sites for signet ring cell cancers. You're following a patient with melanoma, and suddenly they have a signet ring cell cancer, and they can't find the primary for it. Well. See if it's melanoma, signet ring cell variant of melanoma. Because they're really signety. I mean, it's just unbelievable on how much they can be. They're rare, but they're a well-recognized variant. Uh, they're more common in metastases than in primaries, and that's why they can be particularly problematic. Interestingly, the vacuoles, they kind of appear empty in the HNE, and they're negative for mucin, and most carcinomas, of course, would be positive. And for the mucin stains, and they're actually filled with intermediate filaments, so they're positive for vimentin. And this is the last entity we'll talk on. This is the most dreaded of all entities. 20-year-old male lesion on the chest. From low power, my first thought is what? Well, you could just say melanoma, since that's the topic. It's nevoid melanoma. And when I was a, a young'un, more years ago than I'd like to admit, um, in, as a resident, I was taught that, well, if it has this polypoid of rucoid pattern for a melanocytic lesion, then that's, that's benign. Well, the majority of cases, it is benign. But this is also the most common histologic pattern for nevoid melanoma. And that's an entity, again, we all dread. The reason I thought that from low power, polypoid, but we see that all the time. But do you see how the cells kind of expand out the, these papillary areas? They expand out the papillary dermis. Um, these are described in 1985, a very heterogeneous group of lesions. They simulate a benign nevus. These are just terribly problematic. If you ask people, have you ever missed a nevoid melanoma? You know, the response isn't, no, it's just that, not that I'm aware of yet. That's basically it, because they're terribly problematic. They look just like nevi, often on young adults, usually the trunk. This, again, low power, nevoid melanoma. It's a polypoid. It has these things sticking out of it like that. Um, another thing is that these reet ridges are kind of thin. They're real skinnied up like that. And then this will show better. You see how these expand the papillary dermis? They expand. Often in dermal nevi, dermal nevi can get big, but you'll see an eosinophilic area of fibrosis between the lesion and the associated epithelium. That's very classic and very reassuring. That's what you see in dermal nevi. In nevoid melanoma, the cells go right up, and it's like they're pushing apart uh, that papillary dermis, a very classic feature for a nevoid melanoma. And if you look around hard enough, then you'll usually find some mitotic activity. So in conclusion, cellular blue nevi, they're problematic. They require sampling, uh, a lot of sampling. Usually you want to see the whole thing, because you've seen how those things go wrong. And those aren't unique cases. We see that. 
Uh, epithelioid blue nevi, remember my good friend uh, Aidan Carney and Carney's complex, and, and it's helpful to think about that, and the problem that ends up killing the patients are the uh, myxomas in the heart. Also, if you see a myxoma or get a diagnosis of a myxoma on the ear or on the areola or on the nipple of the breast, then also work them up for the possibility of Carney's. Desmoplastic melanomas, again, they rarely metastasize to lymph nodes. They can be very difficult to diagnose. If you have some pigmented lesion that you do feel some nodularity underneath it, let the pathologist know. You're helping the patient. I mean, not just pathologists, we're all here for the patient. So that will help in the diagnosis, so they're not missed. The congenital nevi, I showed you some differences in proliferation nodules versus melanoma, just so you know that what we're looking at, how it correlates to what you're feeling, what that lump is. The atypical compound nevus of genital type, they can look quite atypical. They show that abrupt maturation. You see them in young females. You can see them in males. If you get a diagnosis of melanoma in the vulva of a 20-year-old woman, you generally are going to ask for another opinion. It does happen, but it's very uncommon. Opposite side, you get a diagnosis of atypical compound nevus of genital type. On an 80-year-old woman, you better be awful worried for melanoma. Recurrent nevi, the trizonal pattern in the most beautiful of cases, which of course is what we show, um, but the real importance here is the history. If you could, if there's any chance that there was a biopsy there before, or trauma there before, you know, please let the pathologist know because it's going to save us and save the patients in those cases from being called melanoma. These biphasic tumors, these are just for fun, but just to know that these exist, the basal melanocytic, the squamal melanocytic tumors. So if you do happen to get a case now that they're being more recognized, it's not that they're occurring more, they're just being more recognized. And that might, may account for some of the cases of melanomas of unknown primary. In those cases, you just have it in the back of your mind, yeah, I heard of that. And then finally, these unusual variants of melanoma, these odd things. You need a high index of suspicion to diagnose them um, in a from the pathology standpoint. From the clinical standpoint, again, you follow in a patient with a history of melanoma, they end up with some oddball new tumor, doesn't make a lot of sense. Call the pathologist, say, I heard about these oddball things, any chance it's that, because we all want to do right for the patients. And then in these, uh, for the pathology standpoint, the immunostains are often very helpful in ruling out one of these odd entities in that setting. So I'll end there. Any questions? Go ahead. Are you, are you recommending being a little bit more uh, prudent at removing the blue nevi? Is there something that was questionable about? The, cel the cellular blue nevi. Yeah, the cellular blue nevi. Or if you get a biopsy of, an, of a blue nevus, and then you end up with all this increased cellularity at the base, we're always real leery. Because in those cases, you can see that those are shaved off the top. And off the top, there was all blue nevus around it. And then there was that big lump of melanoma in the dermis in those cases. So it can be problematic. You know, we see blue nevi all the time. We're not going to be doing that on every one. But there's some features that, from the pathology standpoint, we look at. Cellular blue nevi, that's a unique and very problematic situation. We really want to see the whole lesion. You saw on those on how focal that melanoma can be arising in them. So sampling is a significant issue in those lesions. So clinically, there was something changing about it that made no, the patient... No, there wasn't. There wasn't. Thank you. Yeah. We had a woman in our community uh, die three years ago of basal cell carcinoma that was metastatic. And it sort of a, was a shock to a lot of... She wasn't my patient. Yeah. 
But hearing this, particularly the basal cell carcinoma colonized by, hidden by, as it were, the melanoma, yeah. makes me wonder, what are your thoughts on, on that? And have you, have you seen anybody die of metastatic basal cell? Yeah, we cell? do. We see three a year. We've looked into it. Because three a year? Three a year. Yeah. <clears throat> three a year die. Um, we see them as consultation cases. Uh, the problem is always you get the lung biopsy and is, is it basal cell or is it anything else? There's basal cell tumors of all different sorts of organs, basal cell type uh, tumors of the breast, uh, basal variants, basal cell prostate cancers. There's a lot of basal cell tumors. So to make it from the skin is a little bit of a trick. But if a patient has um, known history of basal cell, particularly some of the more aggressive basal cells, the highly infiltrative, the micronodular patterns, we do see that. It's difficult in being definitive that it's clearly coming from the skin basal cells, again, because it can come from other sites. We do have some markers that can sort that out. Now, as uh, to die of basal cell, in this, the metastases were all melanoma. There was no keratin uh, in our patients. Uh, uh, tumor, so that, was, that patient died of melanoma. He didn't die of, well, of basal cell per se, but we say we call it basal melanocytic tumor manifesting as metastatic melanoma um, in, in that case. But patients do die of basal cell. The earliest reports were about 1950 in cancer, that journal, that's where they were reported. They usually those were large neglected lesions. I think it's on the back of farmers, enormous lesions. Um, but we do see three a year. But then again, we see probably, what do we see, 70, 80,000 consultation cases a year. And all I do is look at odd cases. I mean, just odd stuff. I mean, the last time, honestly, I've seen a regular plain basal cell, I can't even tell you. I just look at the odd stuff. That's just like us. We never see chicken pox because it never gets sent to us and because there's not much of it out there. But yeah. we, most of us wouldn't know it if we saw it. Thank yep. you. So I um, recently had a 24-year-old female that I uh, did a biopsy of um, a pigmented lesion that had changed from like three to three millimeters to four millimeters over six months. And um, it was at the junction of the perineum and kind of the buttocks. Um, and so I got back the path, which called it a junctional nevus with uh, dysplastic features. Right. So is that exactly what you're talking about? That, I mean, that could be attributed to no, a, dis well, okay. a dis uh, dysplastic type of nevus um, is a very unique entity, and that's not an atypical nevus of genital type. Those have different features. Now, all, a all dysplastic nevi are atypical, but all atypical nevi aren't dysplastic. I tend not to use even the term dysplastic in the mm -hmm. consults because I just don't want to go through the whole entire drama with people who have strong feelings one way or another because it's not worth the time in those things. But in this, this is a very different thing. Um, those, what they do is there are major and minor criteria for those. And what we'd see more so in those types of lesions will have a lentiginous growth pattern, often prominent bridging between the root ridges by the melanocytic cells or even just the keratinocytic root ridges themselves. And then we'll see this periredal fibroplasia around it. And the root ridges will be elongated and you'll see this pink stuff going around it. And the histologic features are quite characteristic like that. We don't see that abrupt maturation into the dermis. It's a very classic feature of the genital type nevi. We don't see that in the dysplastic, that it's a smoother transition. Also in the dysplastic, you usually also see kind of an accentuation of the superficial vascular plexus. And the idea that if you look at the skin and you're like, 
where's the vascular plexus? You really can't see it. But in dysplastic nevi, oh yeah, you can see the vessels. It's because they're so accentuated, and there's often a lymphocytic infiltrate associated with them. You don't see that in the atypical uh, compound nevus of genital type. So those, those are different. But you can see dysplastic features in other lesions. About 10% of congenital uh, nevi can show dysplastic type changes in areas in them. So you can see that in them, so it's not impossible to have different patterns in a single lesion like that, but generally, that these are generally for the dysplastic type of nevus and the atypical companies of genital type, um, those generally are gonna have quite different histologic features, so one should be able to tell those apart. Okay, and does that mean, do I, should I be going back and excising? It, it had atypical features? Yes. Or, well, no, it said with dysplastic features, so yes. Yeah, yeah. So then, you know, now everything is a little bit different about that, and institutions are different, I know. In the East Coast, um, I trained with Martin Mim there, and what they did in the Harvard hospitals was that if it was, a, if it was mild, they didn't necessarily re-excise, but moderate and severe got re-excised, and then they would re-excise severe with a five-millimeter margin because they just didn't have faith that people could tell the difference between a severe and a melanoma. So, and is that based on any evidence? Really? No. So I generally, what I'll do on the case is severe obviously has to be re-excised, and moderate generally people re-excise, mild, you know, whatever people are going to do. Um, I'll give the margin status of the lesion if it's as being positive or negative. If it's severely atypical, then I'll give the measured distance to the margin and then let the clinician decide. I mean, if you have a patient who is dying of congestive heart failure, you know, is in you're not going to be going doing some tremendous thing on them. I mean, that's just reality, and I think it's problematic at times. I mean, we want to kind of be helpful in suggestions, but we sure don't want to do arm twisting. And the other thing, too, is say on a severely typical lesion, say, well, recommend five millimeter margins. Okay, five millimeter margins, even for melanoma in situ, say that. Margins in melanocytic lesions, the whole literature is clinical. So, but the problem is, pathologist says that, because it's real easy, just real flippant to go tell somebody what to do, and you end up, tissue shrinkage, variety of things happen, and you get four millimeters. Comes back and then the patient's all upset. Well, it's only four millimeters, and they said take five millimeters. What happened? Because they want their reports. And, and it's hard for the, I think, the clinicians to have to go through and re-explain to them margins in melanocytic lesions um, in melanomas, measured margins are clinical margins. It's not what the pathologist measures. That's to help guide you in what you want. But for your margins, the whole history of margins in melanoma are measured clinically. So that's atypical. It's hard to know if they just did it with dysplastic features, but if it's at the margin, if it were on me or my family, I'd say conserv very conservatively excise it. Okay, thanks. Anything else? Well, thanks so much, you folks, for staying so late.